podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. My conversation today is with Missy Polak about addiction and addiction recovery. Missy Polak works for the American Addiction Centers. She's one of the alumni coordinators based at the Recovery First Treatment Center located in Hollywood, Florida. Part of Missy's job is to work with graduates of their treatment centers and provide them with any support that they need. She often hosts community events with alumni where they can give back to their community and participate in raising awareness about addiction and addiction recovery. Here is the interview with Missy Polak. Addiction sets up a trap for us. While appearing to address a deep need, we are drawn to its attractiveness and the promise of feeling complete in some way. A replacement for God is introduced to rob us of true spirituality. We become spiritually malnourished, believing we have found peace, prosperity, and fulfillment in the very thing that will rob us of it. In addiction, we mistake numbness for peace, indulgence for abundance, gratification for fulfillment, intensity for intimacy, control for safety, perfection for competence. This statement was found on the website marmarinc.org, Mar Addiction Treatment Center. In your own words, who is Missy Pollack? I would say that Missy's a woman who, <laughs> this is so weird speaking in third person, but I'm going to go with it. Okay. Um, Missy's a woman who cares a lot. I think that she's always cared a lot. And that's something that has been both a strength and a weakness, I think her entire life. Um, but she cares and she wants to help people. And that that pours into both her personal life and then definitely her professional life. So if, if she or I can, uh, you know, affect anybody's life in any way and kind of leave it better than I found it, that's, that's my personal, uh, sort of mantra. Uh, I just want to make the world a better place by being in it. And, um, I want to help people go through, you know, anything that they're going through. If, if I can share my experience, strength and hope by doing that. You know, I love hard, I work hard, and I want to be the best version of myself before I go, before I leave this planet. Uh Thank you. Thank you so much. What is your experience with addiction, Missy? Uh, I have both personal um, experience with addiction as well as professional experience because I work in the field today. But the reason why I work in the field is because I battled with addiction for many years. And I still battle with it because addiction is not something you, uh, you recover from forever. You know, it's recovery is a, a constant thing. It's something where every day I wake up and I have to choose, you know, do I want to give in to my disease and kind of go back to that way of life? Or do I want to, you know, thrive and keep going with this new way of life that I've 
fought so hard for. Um, and also to, I fight every day to kind of show these, these people, my clients, how they can live uh, this amazing life as well. So I, I struggled in silence for many years um, with my own personal addiction to, you know, what I call like my drug of choice and what we call in the industry, a drug of choice. Um, and I didn't really know it was an addiction until I knew I couldn't stop. And I knew that I was embarrassed and ashamed. And, you know, it wasn't until I got help that I learned what addiction is. I learned that it is a disease. I learned um, that it stems or it goes so much deeper than just, you know, abusing a drug. Addiction is insidious. It is everything you just said. It is, um, it's a trick on the mind. It's a trick on the brain. It's a trick on, it's a hole. It's an emptiness inside. And you just mistake one thing for another. And uh, you're just filling void after void. And uh, it's sad. Um, Why do you think we suffer in silence for so long? I know, you know, for me personally, I can't speak for everyone, but I was so embarrassed. Again, I think it depends on maybe what you're doing. But, you know, for me, my use was for like the pursuit of perfection. I was abusing uh, a stimulant and I was abusing this specific drug because I thought it would help me get ahead in both like my, my uh, educational career. Um, and then it's in my actual career, my professional career. Um, it was like my secret weapon. And then I became dependent on the secret weapon. So I thought if people found out a, I would be a fraud. So people would know, like, you know, Missy isn't perfect. You see um, everything that she does, says, acts, you know, she's not superwoman. It, it's really, you know, she's, she's a fraud. She's a fake. So I was so scared, A, I'd be found out. Um, and then B, it would be so embarrassing if people found out because I'd be weak. And then people would know that I, I would need a substance to be the person I was. And then also, um, if I was caught or found out, not only would I be ashamed, but then I'd have to give it up because people would take it away from me in some form, you know, because I knew that addiction was bad and wrong. Like I knew using drugs was bad and wrong. Um, so I was so scared of it being taken away because I, I was so scared of having to do it on my own again. Cause once I became addicted to my drug, I couldn't imagine my life without it. So it was all of these things combined that made me, I, I couldn't tell a single person, not a soul for all of those. It was fear. Fear kept me silent. Yeah. So it is almost like of holding ourselves as, as hostage, the sense of imprisonment, isn't it? Mental, emotional, and spiritual. I know it's really a hard thing to do to embrace our vulnerabilities and uh, whatever we think in us that's weak instead of look for something outside of us that makes us feel stronger. How do you work the 12 steps? Once I hit kind of like my rock bottom, as in I knew I couldn't, I couldn't withstand my lifestyle anymore for multiple reasons. Um, my world kind of just crumbled around me. I, I couldn't keep living it the way I was living. And I willingly went to a treatment center because there was no way I was going to get off of this drug that had me without the help of someone, something, something greater than myself. Right. And at this point that was a treatment center. So I went, I did a program. Um, and it wasn't until I went to treatment that's where I was introduced to the idea of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, these, these anonymous programs that I had heard of maybe in movies or maybe joked about in TV shows. You know, yeah. uh, I was 25 when I went to treatment. So although I'd heard about them, I, I never thought that would be me. You know, my idea of an addict was like everybody says, you know, the bum under the bridge, the guy with the paper bag. And as sad as that I am to say or admit that it's the truth. That's what I thought. And it, when I went to treatment, my eyes were open and I realized what an addict was or who an addict was and how I was no different than any of these people because addiction is simply a disease of the mind. It's a disease way of thinking. It's a, it's a thought disease of obsession and compulsion. And, you know, it's having to get more and need more despite the consequences. And um, so when they introduced us to that program, and it was totally up to us what kind of program we wanted to work or use. They gave us literature. And then I, I found out, oh, okay, so these programs exist and they've existed for years, you know, but they're anonymous for a reason. And they're anonymous to protect 
people's anonymity so that people are able to work these programs without the world knowing so that we can heal ourselves from, you know, this disease, um, you know, away from the world and away from the light of the world. Uh, so we could do it in a safe space. And when you work these programs, you learn about the 12 steps and each program has, I mean, the 12 steps are pretty much the same in every one of these programs. They just kind of change the language a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's, uh, addiction or alcohol or, um, I forget what some of the other ones say, but they're, they're pretty much the same 12 steps, no matter where you go, whatever fellowship you work. But I work them because, you know, once I started going to meetings and hearing people share and hearing, okay, well, you know, this man or this woman has 20 years clean, 10 years clean, even a year clean, it doesn't matter. They, they were able to give up their drug of choice. They were able to fight their addiction. And apparently they work the 12 steps. They work a program of recovery and that is how they're clean or sober. And so because it worked for them, I said, you know what? It's going to work for me too. And that's the concept behind the 12 steps is that if it works for me, it can work for you and I will help you do it. And it's the idea of one addict helping another addict. And so the 12 steps is this beautiful idea that it's not complicated. You know what I mean? It's a very simple program. We just can make it complicated if we, if we think too hard about it. Yes. Um, I know what it takes for uh, a person, an addict, to finally take that step toward self-examination and go through, you know, the 12 steps and uh, reach out for help. Unfortunately, it takes disaster a lot of times. But do you think that addicts who are not at this point of destruction can sort of realize that they need help too? So, you know, we talk about our rock bottoms and and everybody's bottoms are different. You know, we also have a saying that your bottom is where you stop digging or where you put the shovel down. Mm. So it's this idea that for some people, they need to have a bottom that's so great that they will never, ever, ever want to go back. Like it is just so bad that the idea of using produces such a horrible, you know, uh, reaction, like a visceral reaction that the idea of picking up would just be, it just, it would be unfathomable. So that's some people's rock bottoms, right? That's jails, institutions, you know, death even. I mean, obviously they can't come back from death, but it would have to just be so bad, right? Some people, you know, getting arrested one time or just losing a job or just seeing their relationships crumble or having, you know, enough significant consequences can scare them enough where they say, this is not okay with me. This is scaring me. I need to stop. I mean, like me, for example, you know, I never lost, um, well, you know, I did, I didn't, I never got fired from a job per se, but I started, I started, you know, missing flights for work. I started kind of losing my cool, I, you know, there were things that were slipping, you know, nobody knew or found out I was using until I admitted my problem. So there were, if I would have kept going, it would have went that route, but I, I was able to stop beforehand. You know, I never lost a house or an apartment. I never um, was arrested or anything like that for me. You know, I was, and I never even went to a harder drug. I never, you know, changed the way I used my drug. You know, some people go from one drug to a harder drug. Some people go from, you know, taking a drug by just by orally to then, you know, taking it intravenously. Like that was not me. Like I never, I never dove deeper like some people do. So you can definitely stop beforehand if A, you're able to realize it soon enough and be, you know, a lot of people might have, like, I was lucky enough to have family members that noticed the change in me. Mm. So every time they would see me during holidays, and that's also because I still chose to see them during holidays, you know, mm. and I'm fortunate enough to have a family where when they would see me, they would notice how thin I was getting. They would notice how erratic my behavior was. So they were able to call me out. And even though I fought them, and I would deny, 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 eventually they were able to kind of put the pieces together and catch me in such a way that they did a sort of intervention and were like, look, this is not working anymore. You have to admit that this is not going the way you want your life to be going. Um, you, know, you need to get help. So I think that it really depends on um, each person and, and maybe how their life is and how much they're willing to lose before it gets, you know, to that point. Yes, yeah, I agree with that. 
please explain your interpretation of each of the 12 steps. Okay. So, I mean, step one, uh, we admitted we were powerless over our, our addiction. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say addiction because that's what we use in Narcotics Anonymous, which is the fellowship I work. Um, but I also like the word addiction because to me, it's all encompassing. I don't consider one drug different than another and I consider alcohol a drug. So we say addiction because it's just like, uh, you can be addicted to anything. Yes. Um, so step one is we admitted we were powerless over our addiction that our lives have become unmanageable. Uh, the way I interpret step one is, you know, it's really just powerlessness. It's, it's really just admitting that I, I'm completely powerless over this drug, over this addiction. It has so much power over me that I have lost control over my own life, that my entire life revolves around this substance, this drink, this drug, and my life has lost meaning, you know, and until you can admit that, until you can admit that you have no more power, you can't move on from any step. Because if you still think you have the power, then then you're not going to get anywhere. So you have to admit powerlessness. You have to think you have a problem before you can address the problem, right? So that's, and, and also, a lot of times with my clients, I say, you know, when I, when I talk about like some freedom from adi- active addiction and, and how I feel today, I love, I love to tell them how beautiful it is to, you know, wake up in the morning and the first thing you think about isn't your drink or drug or, you know, having to grab the bottle or having to grab the pill bottle because- right. That is what rules your life, that it has so much power over you that it manages your entire day. Right. Like imagine, imagine having to you leave your house and you go to work and then you realize, oh my God, I did not grab my 12 o'clock pill. Like I did, like you look in your wallet or you look in your purse and you didn't grab your midday pill. And as crazy as that sounds, I would turn back. Like I'd rather be late for work than no, I didn't have my pills to get me through the day. Right. So it has so much control over you that nothing else matters. And that's how alcohol is for an alcoholic. They have to have their bottles hidden in their purses or hidden in their mattresses or whatever, because if they know they don't have their later fix, that means withdrawals, that means shaking, that means, well, I may as well just give up today because there's no way I'm going to get through the rest of my day without my drug. That's crazy. That is complete powerlessness. Yeah. You have, you're right. It's, it's sad and it's horrible. So Step one is saying, you know what? I am powerless over this, this addiction, this, this drug, this, um, whatever. So well, step one, really it, it's about honesty. It's getting honest with yourself that you have a problem, you know, cause it's not really acceptance necessarily. It's really just, I mean, I guess that's somewhat acceptance, but it's really just getting honest with yourself. Um, and with, um, with anybody really that, that you really have a problem, you know? Yes. And I guess it's accepting the problem. <laughs> yeah, I think yes, no, accepting. <laughs> right, accepting that we can't do anything alone, right, about our weaknesses. Yes. The second step, believing that a higher power in whatever form can help. Kind of like what you just said, you know, we we can't do it alone. And the way I see it is if you believe that you are okay, let me take a step back. So the disease of addiction is very self-centered. It's self-centered in nature, meaning when we're using and we're in active addiction, all we think about, like I was saying, is when we're going to get our next fix, you know, when we're going to use again, how I'm going to get my next one. Um, did I grab my next drink or pill or whatever? It's all about me, 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 me. Everything is about me. You forget about the world around you. Um, it's self, it's selfish. It's a very self-centered disease. So, you know, you have to believe that there's something bigger than you out there because you are not the most important person in this world, A and B. You don't have control anymore. You have to believe that you don't control the world, the oceans, the tide. The you cannot believe that you created this world. You have to truly believe that there's something bigger and better and greater than you, more important than you. Because if you don't, there's just no possible way that you're going to recover. And the idea that a power greater than yourself it says that because it doesn't have to be God. And people get very turned off by the twelve steps because they believe that it's a a religious program, but it's not, it's a spiritual program and a power greater than yourself. Your higher power just has to be something that's loving, uh, greater than you, um, more powerful than you. Um, and that what something that wants the best for you, that's really all a higher power is. It can be anything. 
And when I used to, when I first started uh, in recovery, I used to imagine the ocean. Mm. And I would pray and visualize the ocean because to me, I grew up here in South Florida and going to the beach, even as a kid and listening to the waves crashing, uh, it was so big and powerful to me and, and calming at the same time. And to me, I thought, you know, no one's bigger than the ocean. <laughs> you know, the ocean's vast and mm-hmm. huge and there's no way you don't control the ocean. I don't control the ocean. So something does or, you know, yeah. So you get to decide what your, your higher power is. Everyone does. Okay. So it, it doesn't have to be uh, the higher power. It doesn't have to be within us. Then it's it can be something external, like you said, the ocean. It should be something external. I mean, you know, and I think people that that don't believe in in this stuff or in the twelve steps will say stuff like, "Well, I got this." You know. I'm the greater power. I, I can control this. It's in me. And again, people get that confused. Like this isn't saying that you don't have the power and like, this isn't taking away your power. This isn't taking away, like this isn't not empowering you. This is saying that you need to find your spirituality again, you know, and people, I think confuse the two. We think that it's either, you know, I got to do it. Like it's all in me, but people don't understand the reason why it's in you is because you have a loving God that guides you. People that have strayed so far away from spirituality, we, we've lost ourselves. We've literally thought, you know, I got this. I have to be independent. Life is all on me. You know, I can't ask for help. These are the people that stray so far away from the, their loving God and like their spirituality. And these are the people, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I know for myself, I took the world on my own shoulders and I had no relationship with the higher power and my God. But because of that, I felt so alone and because I felt so alone and I felt like I had to do everything myself and all myself. That's why I went to my drug. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't, I I couldn't get it all done. I couldn't cope with reality. But if I would have just realized I was never alone, I had my God with me the whole time. I had a higher power with me the whole time. That was always by my side. He was always there holding my hand, protecting me, guiding me. Like my path was already laid out and I was going to be okay. I didn't need to go to a drug to help me, you know? Yes. And people don't need to feel alone. They don't need to go to these drugs. And you talked about earlier, like it's all about filling that void. It's a spiritual void that we fill with these drugs, you know? Um, Yeah. Accessing the higher power so we can understand that we are not alone. And, but not just that, not that simple, but that we are indefinitely connected to one another. When you say that the problem with addicts, they, it's very self, a self-centered um, state of mind. Would someone with a narcissistic personality disorder need to treat this problem first? I'm, I'm no psychiatrist. I'm no medical doctor, so I can't really say. Yeah. <laughs> I have no... Um, I mean, I think, well, I think it should be treated together. I mean, I don't think the 12 steps is something that, that could treat any kind of mental disorder. I think that if it's an actual mental disorder, it should be treated properly with, you know, if it needs medication, correct medication. I think the way I feel about recovery in general is like, it's a trifecta. Like I believe it involves, you know, mental health, physical health, and spiritual health, health. And and I believe it's separate, you know what I mean? So I believe you need to work a program of recovery, which involves the 12 steps, involves working a fellowship, NAAA, whatever, you know, so working recovery, but then also mental health to me is seeing a therapist seeing a psychiatrist if you need medication and have an actual chemical imbalance because you can work all the steps you want but if you are chemically imbalanced and it's an actual diagnosis you need to have that corrected none of this is going to work you know and then so the spiritual aspect of it obviously is the prayer it's the meditation it's your conscious contact with a higher power you know the physical aspect is the exercise the endorphins it's it's all of it you know you can't have one without the other it needs to be like a you have to attack it. It's like attacking your disease yeah. um, from every possible area or aspect, you know? Yeah. It you makes, can't do one. It makes a lot of sense. A narcissist, for example, uh, who is an addict, would have to take care of that problem first. So yeah. Step three. Step three to mm-hmm. me, it's very similar to step two. Can you tell me the difference? Uh, step three, deciding to turn control over to the higher power. Yeah. So they, they definitely go together. And remember these steps, 
just like 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 steps are you know they they go up or they go down obviously uh you know in order for a reason so once you in step two you believe that a higher power exists and you truly believe that they can restore you to sanity step three is the action step so in step three you make a decision to turn your will over to your to your uh higher power as you understand him um and that just means again that it's your choice who your higher power is you know you can call him god or you can you know whatever you want to call him but you have to make a decision and this decision is so important because you can believe in God all you want or believe in your higher power. But unless you make that decision to actively turn your will and your life over and say, God, I am trusting you because I believe in you and I trust that you have a plan for me and that your plan and idea for me is so good and so loving that I will do whatever you guide me to do. You know, when we meditate, it's so important to meditate but to listen like we have to listen for guidance you know a lot of people pray and they just ask for things like god please i want to get a raise or please you know help me do this thing or help me do that thing but so much of it is just saying thank you and just listening for guidance so if we don't take the time to listen for what he might be saying or what are what the universe might be saying to us you talk about looking for signs you know our feelings or intuition you know once we get clean and sober we get intuition back which is the you know uh the connection we have with our gut which we lose completely when we start using. You, know, you talked about being numb. Yeah. That's what the numbness is. We have no connection to our intuition when we're using. So we get that back in recovery. So if we can trust that God has a plan for us, and if we just do the next right thing, God's going to keep guiding us and guiding us. So the difference between step two and step three is that step three is an action step. And you do step three every day. So even if you go all the way to step 12, right? Every day you'll do a step three because what will happen is you're going through your day, right? right. And you'll say, um, I'm having a good day. This is great. But then all of a sudden you'll get upset about something. Uh, and usually it's because someone out of your control is upsetting you. Like something, you know, maybe it's your boyfriend or someone at work is, is frustrating you. And you're like, and you want to take your power back. You want to take control back. You want to control the situation or the outcome. Mm, right. And then you have, but you, Right. But then we have to stop and we say, nope, nope, God, I'm putting this in your hands because I can't do this. And this is you. Right. I have no control of the situation. So I'm turning my will over to you and I'm going to let you decide what happens. I like that, Missy. And it seems to me that we are the first step really to get our, ourselves into addiction is actually being addicted to control. I think there's two ways to become an addict. I think that there's the actual, like, you know, you just are pres like a doctor maybe wrongfully prescribes you medication or maybe over prescribes you a medication. And then you actually become physically addicted to that medication, which then changes, sorry, changes the chemical, um, you know, physiology of your brain, which then becomes chemically dependent on that drug. And then you're kind of off to the races because that definitely happens, which is kind of the whole Oxycontin epidemic that we're dealing with, mm -hmm. um, an opioid epidemic mm -hmm. rather. So that's one way. And then the other way is this idea that whether it's from childhood trauma or even adult trauma or whatever happened, you know, from a, a situation that occurred, you know, I definitely think there's this need to control uh, some aspect of our lives, you know, and like what, what else can we control other than our emotions? Right. You know, and that's what drugs are. A, a drug is a mood or mind altering substance that allows us to control exactly the way we feel, whether it's, you know, if we want to be relaxed, we take a downer. If you want to be uh, up and excited, we take an upper, right. you know, if you want to sleep. We, so it's how else can we describe other than we're literally controlling our state of mind? Yes. Um, yeah. At some level, it seems to me that we are all sort of trying to do that in our daily lives. Most people who are now, uh, clinically diagnosed as um, addicts, they're sort of addicted to coffee, for example. It's easy to say we're all addicted to something in some way. And I think that, of course, we're all trying to control them, you know, some more than others, obviously. And I think some of us go to the extremes. And I think some of us go to the extremes because some of us more than others have more powerful emotions. And they're more powerfully negative. You know, I think that an addict wouldn't use a certain drug if they felt okay, yeah. if they felt fine, you know? Right. And, and I'm not, I'm not defending addicts by any means. Um, yeah. but I know that 
you know, for me, and sometimes it starts innocently. I think even if it starts innocently, like for me, for example, I think I was compensating for a much deeper issue that even if the emotion wasn't on the surface, it was a deep emotion. You know, it was something that underneath I was very unhappy or underneath I was fighting something that I wanted to control. And then for other people, it's an outward emotion. So if it's severe depression or it's whatever it is, you know, um, so we're willing to go, I think the extra mile or take the bigger risk to, to get out of ourselves. Yes. But no. yeah, definitely. And it's funny you say that because, you know, we'll take, well, we'll take the coffee to get up in the morning and then we'll have to drink the tea at night. And even if it's innocent, some of us need to have the thing at night to calm down. Right. But it's also because like, well, why are we so wired during the day? Well, we're probably consuming too much media or too much social media or whatever it is. Right. And it's like, we can't even control that because we want, 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 you know? Yes. We can't, it's hard for us to control anything anymore. <laughs> so true. So it's, there's always like a deeper reason really for us to do what we do, but we, we actually don't want to analyze our uh, behaviors, our actions, but instead just go to external um, sort of um, solutions or quick solutions, right? Yeah. So step four, um, taking a personal inventory. So this one, uh, and again, depending on the program you're in, they might work it a little differently, but um, in, in NA or Products Anonymous, what we do is we basically write down, uh, we do an inventory of our lives. So we go deep, we go back as far as we can possibly remember, like to our earliest memory. And we kind of write down everything that's, that's kind of ever happened to us that we can remember. So relationships, um, anything that either happened to us that we feel causes some sort of resentment or anything that we've done that has made us feel uh, guilt or shame or remorse. Um, and it can get really you, you need to get as deep as possible, ugly. I mean, shame, any, anything that causes you shame, anything that you have ever held back, lied to people about anything that you icky stuff, we're talking like, get it all out on paper. Um, anything you've ever held back because I say this all the time that secrets keep us sick and a lot of addicts, uh, use over events that have happened to us that were horrific. I mean, some of us have gone through horrific things. I mean, it would break your heart to hear some of the stories that I hear um, on a daily basis. And you think, well, there's no wonder why this person turned to drugs. Mm. There's absolutely no wonder, you know, I do not blame them. And then you just get mad at certain people for like what people do. You just, it, it makes you just hate some of the world. So this is the chance though, to write it all down and get it all out on paper because keeping it inside you know what, I mean, you know, you're a spiritual person. It, it's literally, it's, it's, it keeps you sick. It's sick inside of you. It will, it can cause actual disease <laughs> and getting it out on paper is very um, freeing and um, it prepares you for what step five is, which is, um, I don't know if you want to say it, but it's admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Yeah. You're trying to look for the root problem for the addiction. So in step four, so not only are you putting all the things that have quote unquote happened to you because you know, it's, you're not trying to be a victim here. It's, it's right. literally just getting it all out. Cause you're also putting down the things that you've done. So you're writing down all the people you've harmed, every bad thing you've ever done, the people you've stolen from, if you've ever hurt anyone, if you've ever killed anyone, I mean, literally you're putting down the things you did before active addiction, the things you did during active addiction, the things you did last week. I mean, it is, everything. If a girl in second grade pulled your hair and that made you feel sad and upset and it made you start hating yourself, and then you got an eating disorder because of it. I mean, it is everything you can think of. You write it down. So yes, it, because what happens is by looking at this inventory of your life, you start to see patterns and you start to see, oh wow. So I've always had this relationship with men. You know, I've always had this thing where I use men and or uh, they get, you know, once they get close to me, I push them away and I self-sabotage. And, you know, you can start seeing the patterns of your life yes. and maybe find, hopefully you find where it starts. Yeah, I know the power of that, right? Of doing that self-examination, that it's also enlightening. It's just, you find so much about yourself you didn't know. Step five, mm -hmm. um, admitting to the higher power, admitting the wrongs done. Does it get people sort of... Um, 
in a state of of shame, of guilt? So people get really scared to do a fourth step um, because they they literally they know what's coming, right? They they get scared of what they're about to you know, say out loud or admit, right. Even on paper, some of these people are, some people admit things that they've never told a single soul in their life. However, you work steps with a sponsor, you know, you don't work steps alone. You work them with a a sponsor who is a, a loving person that you trust, that you grow and and you, you get a, you develop a relationship with. Um, and for some people, it's like the first relationship they've developed in years. Um, and your sponsor is usually a person of the same sex who, is in the same program as you. So, you know, you're an AA, they're an AA. If you're in Narcotics Anonymous, they're Narcotics Anonymous. And the only requirement for a sponsor is that they have already worked their 12 steps. And uh, usually they have a significant amount of clean time or at least more than you. Mm. <laughs> so so you, tr- you trust them. You know that they've already been through it. They've already done this before. And by this point, you've already, each, and each time you finish a step, you go over it with your sponsor. And you're also supposed to be calling your sponsor every day. You check in with them. It's it's a beautiful relationship for the most part. Um, if, if you're doing it right, if if mm-hmm. if it's a good, and you can always switch sponsors if it's not working out. That's the beauty behind it too. And there should be no shame or no anger or anything like that because it, you should you should really find someone that works both ways. It's a mutual relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, so by the time you get to this step, what's great about step five is that. It, it can be a really spiritual experience, you know, like in my past with a sponsor, we've sat down, we've lit a candle you know, and we've said a prayer. We've, you know, we've said, God, please come in, you know, while we're about to do this and woman to woman, as I go through and kind of like share my stuff out loud, you know, she'll stop me and she'll not only she'll chime in and she'll say that happened to me too. Mm. Or, um, you know, well, this is, this happened to me and she'll share something even deeper about herself, or she'll tell me uh, something that I've never known about her, something even more horrific, or something that will always make me feel like, no matter how ashamed or bad or wrong I think I am for what I did, you know, not that she did something worse, but that she would never, ever, ever judge me for it. And that is the beauty behind it. And that's the whole idea behind one addict helping another, is that this program of anonymous people helping each other. Remember, these are people just like, well, obviously me, but you and me, like these are mothers. These are doctors, lawyers, addicts are not the people we think they are. These are regular people, teachers, friends. They're regular people who have just suffered with an addiction and who have decided to be open and honest about it and do something about it. And so we all make mistakes and we are all who we are an active addiction is not who we are when we're clean and sober. It, it changes you. It takes over and it makes you someone you're not. And you will do things that are not morally sound. They don't make sense. So the first step to being clean, staying clean, getting sober, whatever, is forgiveness. You have to forgive yourself because if you don't, if you don't start making amends to yourself and, and letting the shame and guilt go, you hold on and then you keep using because you want to forget it happened. You want to bury it. You want to, you know, cause it's painful. Right. And that's why people relapse. That's why, that's why they relapse and keep going back out. Cause they're like, I can't believe I did that. I, I got to use again. And, uh, it's a vicious cycle. I love that Missy, the, uh, the forgiving, um, part of with the step five by integrating this element of trust, or we would say faith too. You're talking to somebody else who went through the same thing you went through. There's no judgment. So it's highly spiritual, and um, and I love that forgiving part that you just kind of you forgive yourself in that process because now you just open. That's beautiful. So step six: being ready to have the higher power correct any shortcomings in one's character. So this is a fun one, um, and I say that sarcastically because this is when we make a list of. We make a list of all of our defects of character, for example, um, because, because here's the thing, uh, even when we're clean, you know, we still have these defects of character and defects of character are like for me, for example, I'll speak for myself. I, I still deal with jealousy. Um, I deal with defensiveness. I deal with, um, I don't know, procrastination, let's say, um, 
I don't know, you know, these are some examples. So, you know, anger could be one or I don't know. So you get the idea. So these are defects of character, right? Right. They're just, we all have them, you know, and everybody has their own. Some are much more severe than others and they become severe because they start debilitating you in your life. They, they, they hold you back from living the life you want to live, right? Because we get these amazing in recovery, we get these relationships. We start getting um, our lives back. We start getting jobs, careers, relationships, you know, whether it's um, with a significant other or, or friendships, right? But then these defects come out in many ways. And when they come out, they destroy things. And, you know, the only way to, or how we decided through these 12 steps, and because you did step one, you know, you admitted you were powerless. And then you you invited God into your life. And you said, God, you can take my will in my life. And you made this moral inventory. And then when you made the inventory, you started seeing patterns, right? So odds are when you start seeing the patterns throughout your life, these defects were probably there your whole life. You know, they probably didn't just start because also, you know, when I tell people that it's a disease, the disease of addiction, the drug use is usually just a side effect. And it's just one side effect of this disease, mm-hmm. you know, and it's often like the last side effect because it's usually the last one that gets us into like treatment. And it's usually like the final straw that says, okay, you know what? Now I need to get clean. So once we get the drugs out of our system, then it's like, now we got to deal with us. <laughs> like we got to deal with the, defi- like we have to deal with us, like the problem. We're the problem. You know, the mm-hmm. drugs aren't the problem. The drugs were just the defect or sorry, the drugs were just one of the side effects. So now the drugs out of our system, we still have a lot of stuff we got to deal with. And these defects are the main problem and they're going to keep screwing us up and screwing us over, over and over again until we deal with them. So we make this list of every possible one. Mm. <laughs> I'm talking like 80 defects if we can. And then we even ask our sponsor to add more. Mm-hmm. And we ask, right. we ask people that love us to add more and it hurts. You know? <laughs> it, 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 it gets ugly because right. you don't want to hear it. You know, you don't want to hear the stuff that is the truth because the truth hurts. Right. And, but what's cool about this step is that by this time you get there, you're kind of ready because these defects have been ruining your life by this point, because now you're clean, you're in recovery, the drugs aren't an issue anymore, but you're still seeing the disaster of your life because you're like, you'll date someone and you start pushing a guy away because your jealousy creeps in over and over. And you're like, why is this happening? Why do I keep doing this? You know? And you're so sick of it happening that you're like, okay, God, I'm ready. I'm ready for you to take this away from me because I know that only you can remove this. And that's where it begins. You, you make a list of your, your defects and you replace them with assets. So where you used to have anxiety as your defect, you replace that with, um, uh, what would be good for anxiety? You replace that with faith, let's say, or instead of worry, faith, or instead of fear, faith, it's a big one, opposite of fear, you know, instead of jealousy, maybe you would replace that with trust. So you start flipping the defect for the asset and it's a practice. So step six is cool because you start, it's another action step where you, um, you start replacing the defects in your life with the opposite. So you start practicing the affect. These steps is, this isn't something that you do in like one day. Like you, I've been working the steps like two years now. Like I work, you work them slowly. I believe, you know, some people work them a lot faster, but you work them at your own pace. So it's not something you rush through. And then once you finish them, you just do them again. (laughs) So we keep doing the steps over and over. So it's not a race, you know? So by all means, uh, therapy is completely different than what we do in the 12 steps. You know, this is like a peer peer kind of um, program. Whereas a therapist is a licensed professional, you'll deal with trauma. You'll deal with, you know, actual therapy, you know, all the therapy and and the tools needed to deal with in a clinical way. Step seven says, asking the higher power to remove those shortcomings. You mean those defects? Step seven's another action step. It's really where we just pray and we pray uh, every day for him to remove the shortcomings. So again, it's another um, faith-based step where we say, you know, it, it's a lot of just prayer. It's a lot of prayer and saying, God, please remove these shortcomings. Please, please remove them um, because they're still they're still affecting my life negatively. So step seven is a lot of prayer. Yeah. It seems, it feels very much like um, some sort of a, of a church that you go to is searching for, for God. Well, no, because to me, church is an institution. And I was raised 
like I'm Jewish, but I was not raised with any sort of religion in my life whatsoever. So again, to me, the 12 steps are, are extremely spiritual, but I do believe in God now. And I didn't believe in God before doing this. So if the idea of God scares you or scares anybody for that matter, you know, a, I, I feel bad for them because God doesn't have to be whatever, I guess God was taught to them maybe when they were young in a religious sense. I mean, to me, my God is just a higher being that listens to me when I pray to them. You know, you can replace the word God with universe because I believe it's just an entity. It's just a, a thing. A, it's just an entity really that listens to me that I believe if I put energy out there, my energy will be returned. You know, I don't believe that it has to be one or the other. You know, I believe in I am because you are just like you were saying earlier that our energies, you know, like I exist because you exist and it's all, you know, so I don't believe it's like a church. I believe it. um, You make it whatever you want to make it. You know, there is no right or wrong to the way you work the steps. I believe they were created a certain way for a reason, but there is no, um, you have to work it the way you have to work it. Um, And what's cool about this also is that depending on the sponsorship family you're in, they all have their own traditions, how they work the steps. So like I was telling you, um, you know, for mine, uh, we did the, the defect and then the affect. We have like a fun way to do it. Like we have our own little tradition of how we, we use poker chips, for example. And we'll put on one side, we'll put the defect and the other side, we'll put the affect. And for like a week, we'll pull, you just pull one or two every day. And whichever two you pulled that day, you practice those two. So if I pulled jealousy and anger throughout the day, every time jealousy and anger creep up within me, because they usually do, because that's how the universe works. It's, it's just crazy how this stuff works. I remember to flip it and do the opposite. And that's the kind of stuff that when you do that over and over, you start to change. And it might seem crazy. It might seem weird, but like how many people in the regular world actively work on themselves this hard? Yeah. You know, true. So like true. It's, so even if people knock it and say, Oh, you know, this is so religious or, you know, you can look at it like that, or you can look at it as what a beautiful way to try to better yourself as a person. And you could call it whatever you want. Right. Yeah. I, I like that concept. I like them. I call it awareness because yeah. we can't, we can't change if we don't know, if we don't acknowledge what is about us that we can't change, that's possible to change. So I like that. The steps sort of seems like it's trying to, to show us like what is in within us that's destructive, that can, it's possible to change. That's yeah. wonderful. Um, step eight, it says making a list of wrongs done, done to others and being willing to make amends for those wrongs. Uh, this is sort of similar to step five. How different is it, um, Missy? Well, step four and step five is the inventory. So again, that's not only people we harmed, but also people that harmed us. Mm. So step eight is literally, it's specifically the people that we have harmed. So we're talking, we're talking about cleaning up our side of the street. So step eight is about going through your life and where have I done wrong? Who have I hurt? Who have I done wrong. And it's not just people, it's institutions. Have I stolen money from anybody? Have I written a bad check? Have I, um, borrowed to, you know, it's literally, um, have I ever scratched someone's car? Have I ever (laughs) not paid a parking ticket? I mean, you go back to as early as you can remember and you think, you know, did I ever call someone a name? Did I ever hurt? And you, this is about, and this isn't to make you feel bad either. Um, cause some, some of the stuff might, it's going to bring up some things that you probably try to forget, right? Because we don't like remembering who we've, we have hurt, but it's important to, because once you own up to the things you've done and you, and you clean it up as far as saying, you know what, I'm sorry for what I did. It was wrong. I should have never done that to you. And you're not saying you're not what you're, you're what you're not doing is saying, um, I'm sorry. I did it because dot, dot, dot. You're not making excuses. You know, amends is different than saying, sorry. Amends is saying what I did was wrong. I'm telling you what I did was wrong. And I'm going to be a better person now because that's all we can do. We can't change the past. Right. So making an amends is, is literally just owning up to it. And so many people think about it. I mean, how many times have you been wronged in your life? And all you want to do is just have someone say that they did it. 
that you just want someone to own up to it and say like, they did you wrong. They did you dirty instead of just them kind of running away from the problem. So many people are so scared to admit that they did something wrong to you. And we just want them to own up to it. Right? So this is what we do. Whereas step five or step four in the inventory, that's about your whole, I mean, that's people that have hurt you that you hold resentments against because a lot of stuff, step four is about resentments. Cause if you hold resentment in your heart, um, you know, resentment is, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person, waiting for the other person to die. That's what they say. So, yes, yeah. Cause we know how bad that is. So whereas step eight is just your part. So when you go to make amends to people, you don't say, um, so let's say, let's say it was mutual in step eight. Let's say, let's say, um, you and your ex went through a nasty breakup. So you both hurt each other bad. You know, they, maybe he cheated on you, but you also hurt him. Maybe you called him nasty names. Uh, there was a lot of hurt, right? Yeah. You're not going to go into this and say, I'm sorry for what I did, but you were a jerk. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's not what this is about. You're literally going to go in and say, I'm sorry for my part. I'm sorry for what I did to you and said to you. And you're not expecting anything back. You're not expecting an apology from him. You're, you go in just to clean up your side so that you can move on and say, I'm a good person now. That's it. Yeah. But in a way, not just saying because you wanted to get that, you know, out of, out of your system, you actually like, you have to mean it, right? Like take accountability for what you've done. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. And that's why like, we don't do it in that again. That's why you're, you don't do step nine until you're on step nine, because (laughs) you have to have like, but you know, think about how mature and like at what a good place you have to be in to be able to do that. It takes a while and it takes like, you got to clean up so much stuff, you know, that's probably why you have to go through steps six and seven and eight, you know, six and seven with the defects because <laughs> yeah. you're still harboring a lot of anger and resentment. Yeah. You probably can't go into step nine with a clear heart and a clear conscience. Right. So, so in a way it takes courage yeah. and being humble. Two things, very important. Yes. Um, Extremely important. So step nine, it says, contacting those who have been hurt unless doing so would harm the person. So again, step eight is just making a list. All you're doing is making a list. And the reason why it's separated in step eight and step nine, because they're very similar yeah. is because step eight, you make a complete list. And like I said, you go back to Susie in second grade who you stepped on her, uh, you know, you, you broke her Barbie doll. Like you, you go as deep as you possibly can remember. And then you go as far as, um, you know, your boyfriend, Ricky, who you cheated on and Ricky never knew you cheated on him, but you know, and you've been holding that inside, right? So you make a deep, 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 thorough list in step eight. You don't do anything though. And step nine is when you actually take action. So it's an action step. And it's, and so you make these direct amends to those people wherever possible. So you're not going to go, you're probably not going to go find Susie from second grade and say, you're sorry for you know, uh, breaking her Barbie doll. It might not be possible. Who knows? Susie could not be alive anymore. So you have to be realistic about who you actually make the amends to. Some people you will, some people you won't. Some people you might make amends to in person. Some people you might find them online and write a nice email. Some people, um, when it says to do so would injure them or others. For example, you probably wouldn't reach out to Ricky and say, Hey, Ricky, uh, you don't know this, but I cheated on you throughout our entire relationship. And I'm really sorry. You probably wouldn't do that because him not knowing at this point, he's probably okay. But to bring that up now and tell him that you cheated on him for so many years, that might hurt him now. Right. So the idea of making an amends is not to bring pain to anyone. You know, you don't want to, so you wouldn't bring pain to Ricky because wow, I feel so good to get off my chest. So the idea is not to hurt others by making you feel better. It's to clean up your side of the street as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Um, so what you could do to make an amends to Ricky, you know, because you cheated on him, what you can do now is in your next relationship, not cheat. So that's making a, what we call a living amends by now being a better person and never cheating on someone again. You're now making a living amends to Ricky by being a good girlfriend. Now, do they know how to discern what people to call, you know, who to call, who not to call. Do they ask like you, for example, um, to help them? Good question. So they would ask their sponsor. Mm -hmm. So again, every step you go over with your sponsor. So once you do step eight and you make your list, you sit there with your sponsor and you go over every single name. Mm 
and you tell your sponsor, this is Susie. I knew Susie in second grade. This is Ricky. This is Bob. I mean, you and your sponsor sits there lovingly and listens to every single story. And they say, okay, what do you think? Do you want to meet up with Bobby? Is Bobby alive? Does Bobby live locally? Would you, I mean, the a sponsor is so um, selfless and loving and caring that, I mean, obviously they they schedule meeting with you when it works for them and their schedule and there's, there's boundaries clearly, but that's what I mean by this reciprocal relationship because they also, it helps them by helping you, yeah. you know? Yeah. But yes, someone guides you. Yeah. Um, step 10, continuing to take personal inventory and admitting when one it's wrong. So this is the living, like you just said, uh, the living amendments. So yes and no, this is really, I mean, so this is basically what we do every day. So this is like at the end of the day, when you go to bed at night, before you hit the pillow, you say, okay, how was my day today? Where was I wrong? Did I lie to anyone? You know, what, where, where were my defects acting out? You know, sometimes people actually have a checklist. Like we have an inventory sheet where you can go through and you can, um, you know, you can kind of go through and check mark, you know, certain things, but really it's an idea of holding yourself accountable for what happened throughout the day. And if you know that you were wrong, like maybe you got in a fight with someone and you realize, wow, you know, I was wrong when I, when I did, when I said that to that person, or, you know, I got in a fight with so-and-so earlier and I'm just being righteous, or that was my ego, you know, it's important to addicts in recovery to not let things go into the next day. We, we, when we're wrong, we have to promptly admit it now because it's not worth it anymore. We don't hold grudges. We don't let things go into the next day or the next day or the next day, because that's the stuff that keeps us sick. And, and that's not what we do in recovery. We're, we're different today. We are different people and we learn to just get it off our chest, get it over with and be honest and be, and be the best people we can be. So it's, it's all about admitting our wrongs promptly. And, um, cause we don't want to have to make amends again. We don't want to have to <laughs> do another a, a steps. So we got to, you know, we got to get it off our chest now. Right. I feel like it takes a lot of, um, a high level of awareness just to know yes. what the things that you're doing and even the, at the level, uh, at the, the thought level. But yes. That would be an amazing state of awareness to be in. Um, and that would be ideal, but I don't think, you know, it, it'd be very hard to reach that point. Maybe even like 14 years clean. <laughs> Um, I would hope to be like that. Step 11 says, seeking enlightenment and connection with the higher power via prayer and meditation. Uh, Satya prayer meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So again, step 11 is like a maintenance step. It just basically says, you know, we continue to pray um, to, and meditate. So we continue to pray to the God of our understanding and we meditate. So we pray uh, for things and we listen, we listen for, to, for the solution. You know, we say, God, please take our will in our lives um, and guide me, you know, guide me on the path you have set out for me so that I can do your will, you know, and not mine because my will gets me in trouble. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's best for me, but you do. Um, and then that's why it says praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and then the power to carry that out. Yes, so I like that. That's, yeah, that's what I say when I pray for him. Usually I'm just like, grant me your will and grant me courage to do it because I know me and I'll be like, no, I want it my way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't we? Right, Missy? Right. The last step, carrying the message of the 12 steps to others in need. I wanted to, um, to read something for you before you, um, you elaborate on the 12 steps. Dr. Bob Smith, who is one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, attended the Oxford group to quit drinking, and he couldn't. So he stated that spiritual approach was as useless as any other if you soak it up like a sponge and keep it to yourself. Bill Wilson also said, in essence, spirituality is not something we can capture. We have to live it. Uh, would you agree that um, the core of spirituality, of being a spiritual person, it's all about giving back and helping others? Yes, I do. I agree with this completely. So we say that we can't keep what we have without giving it away. I truly believe just like with energy, it's contagious, you know, and, and just like when we know when you want to learn something, 
you, you teach it to someone else. That's just kind of how we absorb better. I feel like that's, that's always worked for me. And, and that's what I do even in my work. I feel like I've become so much more engrossed in my own recovery by working in the field of recovery because I share my passion for how I live my life um, with my clients. And as an alumni coordinator, specifically, I try to teach them or show them by example, how you can live a life in recovery and have fun and be happy and, and you can be free of active addiction and, and, and like, look at me, like I'm an example, I'm living proof. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then I help them, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, we have meetings and we have events and um, just like you said, you know, you, you have to, it's an action, it's spirituality in action. You know, we can't, you can't just absorb recovery. You can't just, I mean, yes, you can learn about it. You can go to meetings, but if you're not practicing the principles every day, if you're not practicing honesty and willingness and you know courage and, and all these things, you know, if you're not helping other people, it's not, it's not going to manifest in your own life. You know, it's, you're not, you're not going to see anything happen. So, you know, we, we become richer by giving acts of service. So there's ways to be in service all over these programs of NA or AA. You can, you can uh, chair meetings. Uh, you can bring meetings into uh, recovery centers, into jails, institutions. You can share the message of hope because that's what it's about. It's about showing and sharing the newcomer, which is what we call people that are brand new to this program who are just starting out getting clean. It's sharing the hope and the idea that if you guys do what's suggested to you, you can have this life too. You know, you can live in recovery. You know, you can live a life recovering from addiction. You don't have to be in the grips. You don't have to be powerless um, over your drug of choice. You know, you can be happy. You can smile again. You can feel again. You don't have to be numb. You can fill the void inside of you with spirituality, with love from a fellowship, with people who can really love you, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, so just like you said, I, I believe in everything. What they say is awareness without action is pain. Because mm. if, you, if you, you know, once you get clean and you start going to meetings, you start sharing and stuff and you start realizing like, wow, like I am my own problem and I'm causing the destruction in my life. But then you don't take any steps towards correcting it. You're just going to be miserable, you know, because now you're just now you're just facing the disease and you don't have any way of coping like you're used to, which is the drugs and alcohol. And you haven't developed any new coping skills, which you do through the steps. So all you're doing is is suffering through the problem and, and you're putting a bandaid on it by, you know, hanging out with people in recovery, but you're not really changing. Um, and then there's people that don't go to any fellowship or work steps. So those are the people that uh, get clean, but then go right back to their old way of living just without drugs and alcohol. And again, like I said, the problem is still there. The problem is the disease of addiction and it exists in your mind. So if you're not doing anything to address the problem, eventually the odds are you will go back out because if you're not doing therapy, if you're not doing a 12-step program, if you're not doing anything to address things we, I, we all, you know, we just talked about, um, the pain will get great enough. I have heard of stories of people being successful without it. I just don't know what the quality of their life is. And that's the difference, the quality of life. What are three things about life that you know for sure, Missy? <laughs> that I know for sure. One thing I know for sure is that life is not guaranteed. I've seen too much death and sadness around me um, because of this disease specifically. Um, I believe nobody's immune uh, to death. So I know for sure life is not guaranteed. That's one certain certainty I have, which makes me very grateful for the life I have. It makes me want to live it to the best of my ability every single day and also appreciate um, my loved ones even more because I've seen beautiful lives taken way too soon. Uh, Another thing I know for sure is that life is what you make it. It's how you view it. It's the choice you make every morning. You know, when you wake up in the morning, it's what is my day going to be like today? Am I going to be happy? Am I going to be sad? And am I going to be positive? And am I going to choose to be grateful for what I have? Or am I going to choose to always want more? Life is what you make it. And what else am I certain about in life? Um, if you're not using your gifts, then, then you're being a taker. <laughs> you're you're yeah. as in I think that we're all put here for a reason. I do believe in our higher powers plan for us. 
I believe that it's all been laid out perfectly and everything from my birth to my life, like how it panned out to my addiction, everything, it all was perfect. You know, exactly how it happened. My, my career change, everything. And even the, the pain, most painful parts, mm-hmm. it all has led to this exact moment, you know, just so I could have the life I have so I can touch the people that I touch so I can share my story and help other people get through what they're going through. Right. And, and, you know, if this is my gift, uh, to be able to help others because I can speak well, I don't know. I don't know if that's <laughs> it, but we all have something. And, and if you, if you don't share it, then I believe that you're being a taker because you're not using the gift that, that your higher power has given you and that other people can benefit from because we're all, we all have something. Yeah. You're certainly a gift that, that is for sure. Where can we find, um, more about you, your work products, services, or future projects? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would say you could follow me on Instagram at Pollock Map, P O L L A C K M A P. I'm also on Facebook, yes, and it's just my name, Missy Pollock. Yes. Thank you so much, Missy, for this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Missy Polak, please visit AmericanAddictionCenters.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit FitForJoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, and Terry Clayton. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.